When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I don't know about you guys, but I washed my hair this morning. Congrats. That's <laughs> a big. It's a big day. You have a lot of hair, so I don't think people who may not have seen pictures of you recently appreciate that's a genuine accomplishment. N- not anymore, though. I got a, I got a haircut. And then I came home and I asked my wife what she thought and then followed seven seconds of silence. <laughs> and uh, I think I like it. <laughs> so it's grown out I a little like bit it. since then. I like it. There you go. <laughs> it's always hard for those first 48, 72 hours after the haircut. It's a little brutal. I got a haircut right before my brother's wedding. I was so short. I look like just completely shorn lamb. And I got it like the night before the wedding. And so all these pictures, I look like I Ooh, just that's enlisted. that's a mistake. It was a terrible call. Jacob, are you still uh, are you still cutting your own hair? Yeah, I am. You really need the forty eight hours if you're cutting your own hair because, like it, it the, it makes a dramatic difference. Yeah, it really the the blend doesn't. It, it's kind of hard to stick the landing on the blend, and like you know, forty eight hours, big big difference, but. Quinta, what about what about you? I, I, just, I, oh, I have, just I have returned to the land the... of professional haircuts. I am I am no longer uh, attempting it myself. I did get asked by some guy with a completely straight face and with not a grain of of mockery if I was in the Marines this weekend <laughs> because of the, this haircut. <laughs> it, it is it is high and tight. There's no there's no, I mean, it's, very high and tight. it's not a bad look. Uh, it's not a bad look, but it it is it is distinctive. <laughs> Yeah. How do you respond to that? Just like, no, but I cut my own hair? That's exactly what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Jody Loves Reasons. Sticking with our Happy Days (laughs) sequels theme uh, series of Rational Security 2.0 names. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are joined once again by Lawfare Managing Editor and soon-to-be-departed uh, Lawfare team member, very sadly, Jacob Schultz. Jacob, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, don't go to law school, Jacob. We're all we're all miserable. Just to clarify, Jacob's not dying. He's, he's going to say dearly departed. I mean that he's going to law school. He's, he's, <laughs> not, psych, he's psychically dying. Yes, exactly. You're, you're going to be emotionally dead for the next three years or so, but the, the, you're going to be in good shape, which is good. There is an advertisement. <laughs> exactly. Big ringing endorsement of the law school experience. Well, we are very excited to have you here with us today as we hash through some of the week's big national security news in what we are calling the Boys Next Door edition. Topic one for this week, Le Pen 15 Club. (laughs) As France enters the final runoff round of its presidential elections, incumbent Emmanuel Macron is being closely trailed by extreme right-wing leader Marine Le Pen. What explains Le Pen's apparent political potency And what would a President Le Pen mean for the rest of the world? Topic two. The biggest botnet takedown since GeoCities deleted my Transformers fan fiction. 
The Justice Department recently revealed that the United States and allied governments have been secretly removing Russian malware from global networks in order to thwart potential cyber attacks. What does this strategy tell us about the future of cyber conflict? And topic three, don't trust the DVE in apartment 23. Postal inspectors recently stumbled on a pair of heavily armed men impersonating DHS agents while living amidst and showering expensive gifts on Secret Service agents and other federal law enforcement officers in a Washington, D.C. apartment complex. What the hell is going on? And should we be concerned? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So to be clear, the, we've mostly invited Jacob on not only because we generally enjoy his presence, but also because we desperately need him to explain the French election to us. So I will cue it up and then I will hand it over to him. So listeners may have noticed there was a presidential election in France. The two top uh, vocators were current President Emmanuel Macron, who got 28.6%, and far-right uh, National Front leader Marine Le Pen at 24.4%. So that means that the two of them will go to a runoff. Um, And the far left candidate, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, was essentially just behind Le Pen at about 22%. There is a lot to talk about here, among other things, uh, what the odds are of a Le Pen presidency and what that would mean for France, Europe, and the the rest of the world. I think there are also a lot of questions around just why the election was as tight as it was. It widened a little bit when the polls actually closed, but my impression, and Jacob can correct me if I'm wrong, was that uh, pollsters generally felt pretty good about Macron's odds until the last few weeks before the vote, at which point Le Pen started gaining on him pretty significantly. There's also the additional complicating factor of uh, the fact that Le Pen was not the only far-right candidate in the race. There's also um, Eric Zemmour, who is a sort of far-right provocateur, who I think it's fair to say was trying to cut uh, Le Pen off from the right um, and sort of present an even more radical vision of governance for France. Uh, Zamor did not do particularly well, but he definitely got uh, a lot of press in the run-up. And there are sort of a lot of questions about what his presence in the race might mean for France, for the far right, for uh, the National Front and the future of Uh, Le Pen as a political figure in France. So, Jacob, there are no end of questions that I could ask you, but let me just kick it over to you. What do you what do you make of the results? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like one piece of context, which is like worth underscoring before going into this, is that France has a very particular presidential election style. Right. So there's the first round in which any candidate who gets I think it's like 500 signatures from some level of elected official can run, right? So it's like an open race in which there's any number of candidates running. And then the way that it works is, right, there's a second round in which the top two vote getters, you know, they run against each other again. And there's, you know, a month of campaigning that intervenes between the two periods, right? So it's a weird style of doing things as compared to other countries, which I think is like, can partially explain the anxieties about what's to happen. So Yeah, like it was close. I was curious. So I I looked at what had happened in 2017. So in 2017, it was the identical outcome from just a a purely results perspective where Le Pen and Macron were the two who made it to the final tour of elections. And then Macron won by some something like a 66 to 34 margin. So it was like quite dominant. But it's actually interesting, like for all the hand wringing about how close things were this time around, it was actually closer last time. So last time, in the first round, Macron got 24%. Le Pen got 
Le Pen got 21.3%. And then the third place was this guy named Francois Fillon, who's like a, he's like a right, more center right, but sort of like associated with some sort of Catholic party. He had a, a big series of scandals in very typical French fashion in the the months, days, weeks, and months leading up to the election. But so that's just to say that for all the hand-wringing about how close this was, I, I was actually sort of struck by, you know, it, it's actually, they're actually further apart from each other than they were last time. And last time the end result was a pretty dominant Macron win. But but that said, I think like the the main difference is that this time there's been five years of Macron and he hasn't like, he is like a pretty deeply unpopular guy, right? France is like a country that, we're a country that has like political grievance for sure, but like France is definitely a country where it's like a pathological desire to like, you know, it's, to criticize those in power and to just resent those in power. And he, he like by dint of his mannerisms, like he's very, he's sort of like stiff. And I think he's sort of, he, he operates a little bit like what, um, European McKinsey consultant would act like if they were president. Like he, he very much reminds me of like a more conservative Pete Buttigieg is sort of like how I've always thought of him. And that it's not like a country where that stuff like plays particularly well. Like he's, he's like way more business-like he's way more sort of American-esque. And, you know, that said, he also ran the first time when he was running, he had created this new party La République en Marche, and like it was this very, you know, he he had this veneer of novelty, even though at his core he's he's like a deeply institutionalist, and like, you know, he's like he's like the type of people who like I think all of us like went to college with, like he's not like this is not like some radical guy, and I think five years of that, you know, makes for a different sort of perspective on who he is. So, I mean, there's lots of different things to talk about, including like who came in third place this time and like what that means for for what could happen in the second round. There's the Zimor stuff. It's, it's like a rich canvas of stuff to talk about. But that's that's sort of my initial thoughts. Yeah. Before we go farther, I do want to ask about Zimor. I mean, is so he came in, I think, a very, very distant fourth or fifth. He really did not do well at all. Do you how do you read that in terms of the threat he does or doesn't represent to the National Front and, and Le Pen. Was that overstated or is he still in a in a good position against her? So I think there's like a little bit of a thing going on and I was a participant in this. Like I recorded a podcast about Zumor. I want to say it was the end of October. Yeah, it was like right before Halloween, which I can remember because I got my COVID booster shot the day before and was feeling horrible. It was like my Jordan flu game podcast recording this about It was Eric a good Zimor. podcast. But I think there's a little bit of a novelty component where he's this new sort of deliberately media craving guy who's very good at ginning up controversy, but has very little in the way of like a political infrastructure to back him. And you can say whatever you want about Marine Le Pen, but you know, she is the heir to a longstanding political legacy in France that like her dad was once in charge of. And, you know, she is now the torchbearer of and has like legitimate you know, electoral strengths and has like a legitimate infrastructure to get votes and to campaign and to like be organized, right? Whereas he's just kind of just like this random guy who like is really good at writing provocative essays and like going on podcasts and sounding like a pseudo intellectual. And I I think like my read on things is there was this like flux of attention to him because he was new and different and like 
frankly, there's nothing interesting about Marine Le Pen. It's just kind of like scary and grim. Whereas like with him, there actually are some things that are kind of interesting and new. And I think there's like a, there's like a bit of a novelty component of attention going to him. Whereas in the long term, the types of people who would be likely to vote for him or to vote for Le Pen, many of them sort of have a long, a longer standing, like, link to Le Pen's party and like the type of like grievance politics that I think she like represents, like they're much more used to and attached to. And she's just like, she's just a, has better name recognition, I think at the end of the day. So, so I, I know very little about French politics. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity just to get it all explained to me by, by Jacob. Um, the, yeah, you, the, you might be out of luck. But <laughs> I, try it, I, I guess my, my first question is, and again, this is someone who's very much an outsider to this, you know, when I'm looking, I'm looking at the results from the first round, right? And you have Macron at 28, Le Pen at 23, and then someone named Melanchon at 22. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. My apologies. Alan, I introduced him in the intro. Did you? Did you? I yes. don't. There's don't. It's just, I don't understand this. It's a beautiful language, but, but it is just this weird refusal to just omit random letters. I don't, they're not random. There are probably rules. Anyway, that's a different situation. I'm just jealous that I don't know French clearly is what's going on here. But the question I have is, Given that the distance between the second and third place finishers is very small, and the third place is on the left, why are we still framing this as kind of this battle between, you know, Macron and Le Pen when, you know, if you add the first and third, that's like way more than half the population, or is that not the right way of thinking about it? I mean, I guess another way of putting it is, should we expect that many, if any, of the folks who voted for the, the third place Someone please tell me how to pronounce his name. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So two different ways to think about it. I think like, first of all, the reason why people are framing it as a left versus right thing is because it actually just doesn't matter who finishes in third place because it's two rounds of elections. And the dispositive thing is who makes it to the second round and then who wins in that, right? So like, it's it's a little bit of a cultural thing where like form of elections dictates discourse about elections. Like, it's it's a little bit less constructive of, to frame it as like a group of left constellation of left parties versus right, whereas in reality, like the end outcome here is the same as it was five years ago, which is like, you know, center versus right. And that's that's sort of like, you know, again, form dictates discourse. So but the, the second component of it is I think the reason why people maybe the reason why the Mélenchon part gets omitted is because he so it, it's not like a traditional left candidate like you know france has a long legacy of quasi socialist parties that call themselves socialist parties but are sort of more like formally left institutionalist have some political power like francois Hollande was you know he was notionally member of the socialist party but is like you know part of the sort of more establishment left melanchon is like france insoumise which is his party is sort of like the to the extent that there's like a Bernie equivalent, it's it is that. And like I, I spent a bunch of time at a French university when I was in college, and there was like a this was like a a very ruthlessly institutionalist uh, university, but there was like a huge component of students who were like a part of the like France Insoumise like activism group, and it's it's sort of this like they're doing a different thing, right? They're they're more interested in radical politics, like they're interested in sort of the you know, like more Jacobin, like strain of, of political thought and the concern a little bit, and he attracts a lot of young people. Like he's quite charismatic. 
I think. Um, he's sort of weird and like ham-handed often, but I think there's some concern that a lot of the people that voted for him are sort of so, you know, so put off by the political establishment that they would vote for Le Pen. There was some poll that that said, you know, a third of likely Mélenchon voters would either like consider voting for Le Pen or definitely vote for Le Pen. And obviously that's anxiety inducing, particularly when you also take the 7% of people who voted for Eric Zemmour who would definitely vote for Le Pen. But I, there's been some reporting since the election that suggests that like, maybe that's like a misplaced anxiety and that in reality, most of the Mélenchon voters would just vote for, just vote for Macron. And like in 2017, 55% of the the Mélenchon voters ended up voting for Macron the second time around. 7% voted for Le Pen and the rest just didn't vote. And like, you know, maybe that happens again. But I think that's sort of, those are like the two reasons for, for the, the framing question. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon if you put it at, you know, how we think about what often people think about like different tiers of voting or what is kind of a ranked, not ranked choice specifically, but kind of runoff voting is supposed to do. Because the basic idea behind it is like everybody gets to get their jollies out in the first round. You can vote for whatever wild person you want. But in the end, everybody's got to decide between the two biggest vote getting candidates. And in theory, the idea is often that this is supposed to like moderate them, right? It's it's saying you have to compete for the votes of your other political rivals. You can't just stay in your camp. You've got to reach out to them. Um, but here we're in this situation where Macron appeared on the scene in 2016, squatted on like the middle of the political, what we think of as the conventional political spectrum, really trying to seize both the center left and center right parties that had kind of dominated French politics for the last few decades prior to that um, and successfully did so more or less. And you might think that that actually squeezes people out on either side, right? Because there's not easy for them to left to jump to right when we think of it as a spectrum. But we actually need to think of a politics more often these days probably is much more of a circle, right, where we're dealing with one of the spectrum. But there's another side where the far left and the far right intersect and people see a lot of commonalities there. Um, we see that in a lot of different political systems these days. We saw it in elements of our political system in 2016, certainly. You know, I think we still see it in a lot of different countries. And so that seems to be really what people are worried about here is another version of that. One that seems a lot more plausible because France is weird. France has a strong tradition of anti-institutionalism. And there is this kind of youth factor about saying that like the youth are involved in both of those that might not have being same embedded in the same political structures that other people did, uh, that other people might be if they were, you know, longer acting political actors. So I guess my question for this, for you, Jake, or, or, or for Quinto or Allen, for your reaction is, how much of a phantom is this? Like, how big a jump is this? How much of a circle is this? Or how much of a, of a U-shape or a horseshoe is this that the left and the right are able to jump across? And is that something that's very culturally bound as opposed to making too many generalizations from one context to another? I mean, so first off, yeah. So this is usually called horseshoe theory. Um, I mean, I think there's it's oversimplified often. I do think there's something to it. I would dispute that there is much of a horseshoe in the US in, in uh, 2016. I would call it maybe more of like an an L, perhaps, half a horseshoe. But I mean, in its most extreme form, right, this is also what we tend to call a red-brown alliance, and it doesn't look particularly good either. So it's certainly true that there are, you know, overlaps that are worth being concerned about when it comes to the, the real fringe. But I also think that it's important not to overstate the extent to which sort of mainstream or increasingly mainstream political movements mirror each other as opposed to being driven by 
very different dynamics, if that makes sense. And I, I will also say for, for all like the, you know, for all the anxiety about this to Melanchon's credit, like he, at least as far as I can tell, has been like quite vocal that the people who voted for him the first round should not be voting for Le Pen the second round. And is like quite clear about like where his loyalties lie, you know, notwithstanding maybe like certain ways in which he campaigned and stuff like that. But that is like a pretty clear and unequivocal stance, whether or not people listen to him, I guess is now the operative question. Yeah, I, I think that's really the question. I mean, we're coming off a few years, obviously, where Macron had uh, a lot of issues, as almost every other government did with managing COVID, lots of policies that are complicated, economies under strain, the really difficult political situation in Europe has a lot of challenges. And you can see there's lots of data points that people can seize on and react against there. But I guess the question is, you know, what is the source of grievance that could drive that sort of jump? Is it this just kind of cultural, instinctively anti-institutionalism? Does this go back to kind of yellow shirts opposition and a lot of the organizing? Like, what is what are the unifying grievances that that branch the two tips of the horseshoe, if you will, or might at least people are worried about doing that? And also, Jacob, for those of us who uh, uh, would like a refresher on the uh, the yellow shirts controversy, asking for a friend, if you want to include that, that'd be great, too. So, so the yellow, yellow vest, not yellow shirt protest was about, it was at least in the, the immediate catalyst for it was concerns about like rising, like rising cost of living, basically like rising oil prices, rising gas prices, like rising housing costs, the types of things that, you know, make people annoyed everywhere. So that was like the immediate cause, but I think it's like a broader, you know, it, it's like motivated by broader anxieties about middle class being, being left out of you know, being left out of the political discourse. And like part of what the yellow vests were was people driving from outside of cities into cities to like make themselves noticed, right? Like there's sort of like a concern that Macron was, you know, like an urbanist, overly cosmopolitan, whatever, and sort of was neglecting those on the periphery. I think, Scott, I, I don't have a great answer to your question of like what might be uniting. I think like a big cause of grievance with Macron among folks on the left, which might cause them to just not vote in the second round of elections. And has been, it's something that I've seen, it was expressed at the time, but also has been, you know, some stories where they interview people who voted for Mélenchon who say they're not going to vote. This is what they talk about is after some people might remember in the fall of 2020, there was like a, there's a beheading of a teacher by the hands of someone who like, purported to have some allegiance to the Islamic State. And this was had links to the Charlie Hebdo shootings and sort of played this, like had this broader link to France's history of, France's broader history of like responding and reckoning with Islamic extremism. And the response from the Macron administration, both from him and from his like crazy foreign minister, was to like take a pretty hard line on Islam and take like a very strong rhetorical stance against what was happening and a very strong rhetorical stance in favor of like what he would call French secularism. And I think there was some concern among people, rightly so in my view, that the the rhetoric coming out of that lends itself to anti-Islamic sentiment, lends itself to sort of racist sentiment in a country that has like a long history of struggling to reckon with the legacies of colonialism. And I think just generally contributes to some people's view that Macron is was trying to court right-wing voters at the expense of caring for the broader 
population. And I, I think that to the extent that there's anxieties about people not voting for him among the left, like that's part of what the concern is. Definitely not the whole picture, but part of it. Well, it is certainly uh, an interesting situation in France that we'll have to keep an eye on as we get close to the next vote, which I think is in two weeks or so to the for the final vote. But until then, we need to move on to another topic. Going from political circles to big holes in cybersecurity, I want to talk about <laughs> some recent actions <laughs> taken by the Justice Department uh, here in the United States, um, where we've recently got some reports by Attorney General Merrick Garland, among others, noting that the United States is engaged in what is a pretty notable cyber operation in the last few weeks, where uh, using warrants provided by federal courts and in coordination with foreign government officials of various stripes, I don't have a lot of details on exactly what happened there, but supposedly with the permission of foreign governments, the United States has actually been going into a number of computer systems, friendly computer systems, to take out malware that was believed to be associated with Russian intelligence that would have allowed them to operate you know, a series of botnets, but instead that they could have used, I should say, for a variety of cyber attacks, variety of other nefarious purposes that was seen as a major vulnerability, and that the Justice Department and no doubt other elements of the United States government took proactive measures to go ahead and remove those pieces of malware and protect those systems in doing so. We've seen little hints of this strategy before. The Justice Department's done similar things a few times, uh, but as far as uh, I'm aware, not quite at this scale. And it's particularly notable here, of course, because of the geostrategic context in which we have all been worried about potential cyber responses by Russia in response to Western sanctions and other Western measures in support of Ukraine um, that have not yet manifested. And this might be part of the reason why they haven't manifested if Russia's toolkit really has been diminished by this previously covert effort that's now come public. Alan, let me start with you as somebody who's worked on cyber issues at the Justice Department. Tell us a little bit about what the legal authority behind this sort of action is, uh, how new it is, how well-defined it is, and how it fits into the Justice Department's, I guess the United States, broader strategy for addressing these sorts of cybersecurity threats. Sure. So in terms of the legal framework for this, I think it's useful to start with the simple case and then see how it gets more complicated. So if you imagine a really simple case, there's a specific computer somewhere, you know physically where it is, and you have probable cause to believe that <clears throat> there is evidence on that computer of some crime. Uh, maybe the crime is computer hacking, maybe it's something else. Uh, or you believe that that computer has or is being used to commit a crime, hacking or something else. Right? Then you can go and you can get a search warrant. Right? You can get a search warrant, you can get a seizure warrant, you, know, you can do whatever you need to do to go and evaluate that computer and then potentially neutralize that threat. Now, because in this hypothetical, you know where it is, you go to a magistrate judge in the district where the computer is, and you ask the magistrate judge for permission, right? And this is the idea of venue in criminal procedure. The tricky thing is that with cybersecurity issues, one of two things is often the case. The first is that often you don't know where the computer is. You know there's a computer somewhere you know that it has a certain IP address or it says that it has a certain IP address, but you actually don't know where the physical bare metal, as it were, is located. Also, you don't know if it's just one computer or if it's a bunch of computers. If it's a distributed attack, um, then there are computers all over. And the more sophisticated the attacks, the more they may be jumping from computer to computer. So this was posing a real problem to law enforcement in the last decade 
because you had situations where you definitely had probable cause to know that there was a computer that you would otherwise have the ability to search and siege, but because you didn't know where it was, there was no judge who had the appropriate venue to give you your search warrant. So DOJ started a a process, uh, I think in 2012 or so, to update Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. This is the the rule that governs uh, the process for getting uh, search warrants. And after three years, uh, they updated the rules and then Congress pass them with not much debate. And the the upshot of those changes was that it created this special venue provision where if you have a computer that is hiding its information or hiding its location rather, or, or if you have an attack that you believe is coming from like more than five computers, then you can go to any judge anywhere in the United States. Uh, and that judge will have venue to give you your search warrant, right? And so uh, there have been some you know, notable uses of this this happens a lot in child exploitation cases uh, where the uh, government wants to take control of a you know, child exploitation server somewhere that may be being uh, used by a bunch of other computers all around the world. And, and so I, I suspect what happened in this case, though, again, we obviously don't know uh, because the warrants are sealed for understandable reasons, is that uh, the government uh, went to the court and said, look, here are these computers. You know, some of them we know where they are. Some of them we don't necessarily know where they are. Right. We assume that they're in the United States, but it's possible that they're outside the United States. And the court uh, had venue through these through these special provisions. So, you know, I, I think that it this shows why this venue change was important, but it also highlights some of the, the risks uh, of this venue change, uh, which were raised at the time, which is and this was made particularly well. There's a, a great law review article from uh, Ahmed Gapoor, who's at, at BU, who discusses this really, really nicely. You know, the, the problem with this venue expansion is that it has the potential of allowing law enforcement to conduct searches and seizures extraterritorially, because if they don't know where the computers are, they can't be sure that they're in the United States. Uh, And so although the venue change was not meant to substantively expand uh, the government's power, it was just meant to make it sort of more convenient for the government to get search warrants. The effect is that it might de facto expand the government's power uh, where the government uses this to search computers that happen to be outside the United States. So that's the that's the search warrant piece of this. There are other parts of this investigation. So there's collaboration with other countries, which obviously does not really need um, any judicial process. There may be other forms of malware detection that we don't know yet about. There may be some public-private cooperation. Uh, would not surprise me if the United States government is working with the big tech companies. Um, Microsoft in particular has uh, done a lot of work uh, in tandem with the government in the past to deal with botnet and malware. But I think from uh, these, you know, quote unquote, secret court orders. I suspect uh, that, that this is what we're looking at. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
I mean, one one question I had about this is the extent to which the reporting on it kind of fits into the the pattern that we're seeing of sort of aggressive U.S. intelligence disclosures around what's happening in relation to Ukraine. So we'd seen this in the sort of the run up to the war and in, in the the last month or so. God, it's been over a month um, in terms of, you know, U.S. intelligence giving information to reporters about what Putin is thinking, what Russian troops are doing, this, that and the other. You know, the U.S. is bracing for potential cyber attacks, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious, Ellen, I mean, looking at the press reporting, is this another as this sort of reporting about the U.S. is doing these kinds of actions? Is that another aspect of this sort of I don't know what you can call it, like transparency strategy by the intelligence community? Or is it more on the line of, you know, normal reporting that you would read on a big takedown of a botnet? I think it's both. I think here what's happening is that one use for this reporting is that it shows Russia that we know what they're doing. It's another way of showing Russia's malign intent, right? That is very much the use of intelligence as part of the broader strategic effort to counter Russian aggression. Um, on the other hand, there's also an element that this is also just a regular domestic criminal investigation, right? It is happening in the United States. The go government is using very powerful but legal authorities to do very important but very sensitive things in U.S. domestic networks. And so we'd want to know about that regardless of whether or not this was part of some broader effort to curb you know, Russian influence. So I, I think here the, the kind of transparency is is overdetermined, as it were, which I think is fine. We had run, there was a, a botnet takedown almost exactly a year ago, and we had run a, a bunch of stuff about it. And I, I think one of my big takeaways from that, and a plug for a good Lawfare article written by Scott's friend, Alex Iftemi, about, about what had happened. But my friend too, and my very close DOJ coworker. Oh. He, he, may be Scott's, he may be Scott's friend. But he was my like almost office mate. Scott got there first. <laughs> yeah, Scott, you're you're just second. Alex. I claimed it. I'm sure Alex will get way too much enjoyment out of this segment <laughs> if he listens to Rational Security. Um, 50 /50. Yeah, but he part of sort of the implicit point of what he had written, and it's actually it's a super useful piece for understanding the legal framework of what's going on here. But is that the 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 takedown then was sort of part of a broader like both rhetorical and like functional pivot within DOJ to be very vocal that part of how Chris Ray and and the rest of you know DOJ sees its role in the cyber realm is is not just being sort of like the whack-a-mole ex post punitive agent but also like spreading its tentacles out and having a role in sort of like making it less of just like a emergency cleanup unit and making it more of like a we're here to to keep things functioning well and to you know to keep bad actors at bay and on sort of a more continual basis and they were very these were remarks that ray had given at some at an aspen conference and then immediately after you know there's a very public garland speech explaining why they did the bot the botnet takedown in that instance and again here like we didn't, as Quinta says, like we didn't find out about this through like some clever Charlie Savage story. It's because Merrick Garland like told us that this is what was happening. And I think it, it does seem to be right. Like it, it's a bit counterintuitive for people who have a more like arm's length understanding of what the Justice Department does, that this is something that they're up to. And, and there does seem to be some sort of conscious effort underway to like explain that they are, they conceive of themselves and act 
in a way that's not just this sort of like punitive, like, you know, image of like FBI guys and windbreakers cleaning up after the fact. Like there's an ongoing, they have a, they have a different role than people might otherwise expect. I wonder if cybersecurity agents still wear windbreakers just just to wear them, right? I mean, technically, you're, in, you're inside. It's climate controlled, I assume. But I could just imagine... Who gets windbreaker? Yeah, exactly. I just imagine putting the windbreaker on just to put you in that right frame of mind. And when they go to work, they pull that little flap down the back so it says FBI on the back. <laughs> well, that's the windbreaker. clacking away. You get... It's like a, you get to GS-13 and then they give you like a really nice windbreaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I will say, when you look at, you know, pictures from the, the Pentagon of uh, cyber units, they are all wearing camo, you know, sitting there typing away. So they, it, it's clearly a thing. It's part of the game. I think for like DOD and other cyber units, that's because those uniforms are supposedly much more comfortable. So you can get away with, it's kind of like pajamas, basically, for most of the day. You know, what, what I think is really interesting about this, just taking a little bit of a step back and this sort of tactical approach the Justice Department has taken here, right, is that it feels great that they have this capability and I like that they're doing it. You know, there's always questions about, you know, how far this goes on civil liberties. Is the government, do we trust the government to do things like this? And I think, you know, as this becomes more commonplace and maybe it becomes, uh, starts hitting networks that people are more sensitive about, particularly if it's like personal information, there may be concerns and pushback from civil liberties and tech groups more than we've already seen. And that's not necessarily right or wrong. It seems kind of inevitable. It's good to have scrutiny and to have conversations about the right scope of government activity like this. But fundamentally, this seems desirable. But it's a real suboptimal thing to have to rely on in a way. Primarily because we just don't have a very good system for actually requiring private industry or even critical infrastructure that we all rely on to really effectively implement their own cyber protections and controls. Because ideally, you know, if this were like, you know, a a, a sort of threat coming from, um, you know, safety standards of in like, you know, let's say dam construction, right? You would expect all the dams just to be able to have to abide by regulatory standards for how they do certain things to prevent, you know, access to their facilities for saboteurs. We don't have as much that clearly in the space. We've seen steps in this direction recently. You know, there's a new uh, statutory requirement that was just in one of the major omnibus bills that basically says there needs to be more disclosures about cyber attacks by private companies or if they end up paying, you know, to ransomware to get their information back. But it strikes me that that this is, you know, a very good option on a terrain that's still very suboptimal because it just seems like the government's still really wrestling with having an effective regulatory regime that can encourage private industry to really step up in this way. So I, I Scott, I, th- I think you're, I think you're half right. And, and the, the part that I agree with you on is, is that the more we can do to encourage private companies to improve their cybersecurity, the, the, the better. And, and that is a difficult challenge. And some of that is hard because cybersecurity is hard. Some of that is hard because companies want to cut corners. So there, there's definitely that. Where I don't agree with you is that this is necessarily an example of that, because here we're talking about a incredibly sophisticated nation state actor who is clearly spending a lot of time and money trying to get into our networks for its own geostrategic purposes. And there, it's not that we shouldn't want private companies to do what they can to, to resist that. I mean, we should. But I think at certain point, it's just not the private sector's role to defend against these sort of nation state threats, just as, you know, we, we, don't, we don't expect our physical infrastructure to have its own you know, anti-ballistic missile protection, right? Like that's sort of why we have a government. And so I would say that you know, this is this is kind of what we should expect because, you know, at the end of the day, 
defending systems is just much, much harder than attacking them. That is just a very wide attack, attack surface, uh, as they say. Um, the systems are incredibly complicated. They're getting more complicated by the minute. Complexity is the enemy of security. And a sufficiently resourced and motivated attacker will find a hole in your system. They, they, just, they just will. There's just, there's just no way to defend everything from the, the most sophisticated uh, attackers. Um, so I, I do think you have to have a kind of a double or a dual system where, yes, companies have to be doing you know, basic and even more than basic cyber hygiene and cyber protection so that the government can then focus on the really, really bad actors. And I think what we're seeing here is how this will inevitably work itself out. I I don't disagree with that. But I mean, I I think the question you end up arriving at, though, is how much confidence can we take from FBI's measures like this? I think we've started to hear a narrative emerging that parallels a lot of the narrative surrounding Russia's conventional military capabilities, which have shown to be far below what we expected them to be as a result of the war in Ukraine, now extending similar logic into the cyber realm, precisely because we haven't seen Russian cyber operations of any really significant scale against us, at least, or against major Western targets. They've certainly been having in Ukraine and other places, including Finland, uh, you know, Sweden, a few other places more recently, we're talking about joining NATO potentially. But we haven't seen anything really of a major scale like we expected from like, you know, not Petia days and other things like that. We thought we're going to see something potentially catastrophic. But and I think this is what you're saying, Alan, is like, is that this sort of measure is inherently imperfect. It can't actually provide the full measure of security. And so we need to fight a degree of self of any sort of false confidence we may take from the success of these ventures. And it just strikes me that there's a little bit of a double edged sword to the transparency element of it there, because it can also vest false confidence in our own cyber capabilities, particularly on the defensive side, which, as you know, it's just a much more complicated game. And so maybe there's that's this needs to be couched in terms of but by the way, guys, this is just a small slice of what might be laying out there. We really need to bump up a lot of our baseline security in addition to have the special capabilities move forward, whereas Congress and frankly, the political consensus across administration seems to be much lean much more towards developing offensive capabilities that even if they can be used defensively, then really being willing to put it on the private sector saying we need to regulate this and get some base strong baselines in place. But there may be shifts coming in that space. I mean, who really knows? So from one law enforcement success to another, but much weirder law enforcement success story, uh, let's talk about this wild Secret Service thing. So uh, two men, uh, Aryan Tarjadeh and uh, Haider Ali, um, have been charged, as Scott noted at the top of the show, with impersonating federal officers, specifically from the Department of Homeland Security. But why they were doing this is super weird. And I'm going to do my best to explain this, though I am very, very puzzled. So the allegation is that these individuals gave Secret Service personnel lavish gifts, rent-free apartments, a drone. In one case, they uh, offered to provide a $2,000 rifle to a Secret Service officer who worked on First Lady Jill Biden's security detail. The the way this was uncovered is also super weird. Apparently, there uh, were some postal inspectors who uh, were investigating um, a report of an assault uh, on a a mail carrier in uh, the Navy Yard's neighborhood in in D.C., which is this lovely uh, newish kind of set of big high-rise developments and and luxury buildings. Uh, Jacob and Quinta are making faces at me because apparently Navy Yard's is is not cool. I've been out of D.C. for for some time. It's very corporate. It's very corporate. It's, it, is, it is very corporate. It is very corporate. But you know what? More housing is good. 
uh, and I will, I will, I, you know, even corporate housing is is better than uh, than less housing. But anyway, this is not a housing podcast. And and so they they went to the the navy yards to investigate this, totally unrelated, by the way. And as they were talking to people, they found out that there are these two. DHS agents living in the building, but it all sounded super weird. So they, they reported that to DHS, and then the DHS inspector general realized very quickly that these were not actually DHS, that these are not actually DHS uh, agents. So ultimately, law enforcement conducted a search on the apartment where these two were were living, uh, or, or at least where where uh, Tarjada was living, and they found a stash of police weapons access codes to federal agents' homes. They found equipment that could, in theory, create personal identification verification cards, which um, are the things that allow access to sensitive law enforcement computers. Um, So these individuals have been uh, arrested on charges of impersonating law enforcement, which is not itself actually that serious of a charge, right? Um, Under the guidelines, um, this would get them like zero to six months in prison, and they'd probably just be out on probation kind of immediately. But law enforcement is is asking for them to be held in jail pending trial because there are potential flight risks. In particularly, uh, Ali, who is a U.S. citizen, also is a Pakistani national. And at some point, told someone that he has connections to the Pakistani intelligence services, though the Pakistanis deny this and they have no idea who this guy is. And the story from the defendants and Tarjad in particular is that he was a former security guard and just thought secret service officers were cool and wanted to be friends with them. So this this is all just um, like a weird professional crush. This story is super bizarre. And and so the first question I I have, and I'm curious what you all think, what could the motivations for this be? I mean, should we just accept the most simple yet somewhat strange account that these are just awkward, weirdo ding-dongs who just really wanted to be friends with Secret Service officers? Or is there any reason to think that there is something more nefarious afoot? I mean, I would say go with Occam's razor, except that I actually don't know what Occam's razor is in this situation. <laughs> yeah, what, what is the simplest explanation? I have no idea. I mean, it's just like every piece of this, it just gets weirder and weirder. There's as we're as we're recording this, there's actually a uh, a third day of hearings going on uh, over whether or not these two should be detained pre-trial. And the judge from from the reporters who are tweeting the hearing seems just as confused as as we are, frankly. <laughs> I mean, it. I don't even know what to say. It's so weird. I I suppose you could say, okay, well, let's just go with you know the explanation that they gave. Except I don't understand why you would want to be friends with Secret Service agents that badly, right? Like that's that's the thing that doesn't make any sense. And why would you spend all of that money on it? I just have you not seen I, Olympus has fallen. Secret Service agents are so cool. I, I will say, I will say, what is what I think is important here is that um, Carol Lenning, who writes for the Washington Post, has a book out about how the Secret Service is just a truly shambolic organization at every single level, and uh, this is a great demonstration of that. That these dudes were just hanging around a bunch of Secret Service agents, and they were like, "Yeah, that seems fine." I'll just take a $2,000 gun as a gift from you. MBD, don't even worry about it. Or a free apartment. (laughs) How does that even happen? It is wild. I do have to say, to understand one possible explanation of the story, you really have to dig deep into the male psyche. <laughs> Don't resist. No one no one wants to it's dig a, deep into the dark, male psyche. This is going to be a dark journey. It's just that guns <laughs> oh, no. are cool and the people <laughs> oh. that have them are even cooler. <laughs> no, 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 no. Believe me, I have done a lot of reading and writing about toxic masculinity. <laughs> yeah. This is a good, a good example of that. There is just, there is like a weird 
cultural phenomenon where certain dudes just really like guns and like hanging out with dudes with guns. And there is a weird like fetishization of military and paramilitary related stuff. It often overlaps a lot. Frankly, one of the places that I see Reddit most recently is in talking about the Oath Keepers communications leading up to January 6th, where there is this utter embrace of all sorts of military mystique, even by people who have no connection to the actual military, you know, people buying military style firearms and training and tactical equipment, all sorts of things like that. That's just like a weird cultural thread we have in America of almost always men of a particular type. So, you know, who knows? This could be that. I mean, I don't think we can entirely rule that out. That said, the weird part here is why do you need five apartments to do that? And why do you need the ability to replicate access cards? And why are you gathering information on the people who live in this apartment building? So a big part of the story just do not fit with that narrative. That narrative is very much the one these guys' lawyers are putting forward before the court right now, trying to keep them out of out of uh, detention, right? But the other parts of the story just do not fit well with that. And it looks, I think it very clearly looks like some sort of foreign intelligence operation. We don't know who the resources are. And actually, like an interesting angle of the story that I hadn't fully realized until I started digging into it is that while they have these five apartments, they don't appear to have paid for any of them, uh, at least not in a very long time. There's an outstanding judgment against them by the landlord against their company for like a quarter of a million dollars for unpaid rent for these various units. Um, that said, they clearly had enough money or somebody they could turn to to get approved for these units to rent them initially, or maybe it was just some really impressively executed con, who really knows. But there's a lot of pieces here that certainly look like some sort of intelligence operation, and, and you can see why the government would want to dig into it. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it seems like that they've stumbled across it so quickly that they're having trouble bringing together the pieces to build a case to bring alternate charges that might provide a better basis for detaining these guys moving forward. That seems to be the struggle we're at at this particular moment. I, I don't know. I, I'll contribute a, a piece of no, I have no thoughts on the merits of whether this is a foreign intelligence operation or not. But I will say, you know, the, the three of you sort of conduct life with the Twitter intravenously plugged <laughs> into your arm as you like go throughout the day and conduct your business. And I've been this past week and this past couple of weeks have been traveling a decent amount and have by by dint of that have been on Twitter a lot less. And this is this story is the true moment where I feel the <laughs> delta between myself and all of you reaching its greatest point where, you know, you're all firing away in the Lawfare Slack channel about this. And I'm sort of ducking in and out with the, whatever ephemera is available and feel like I'm <laughs> dealing with completely crazy people, which I think one reflects, you know, what, what your guys' media consumption habits are, but also has like an interesting, there are occasionally these stories where like, it's so complicated and so strange and table stakes to understanding what's going on are so high. And I, I don't know, I do feel like in my time at Lawfare, there have been like, four or five or six of these stories and it's it's really always sort of interesting to see how like how can we expect anyone who is not one of the three of you to understand what's going on here and i, I think that's like an interesting it's like an interesting task for whoever's reporting on these stories and it's also it, it's like a really hard thing i think about some national security stories in general where like really the buy-in cost to understanding is so high and the sort of like buy-in cost to being able to process it with like, you know, holding one, two, three, four alternative hypotheses in your head at the same time about what could have happened. It's like sort of a, a tall intellectual task. And it's, I don't know, this has sort of just been, among other things, an interesting reminder of like a lot of the stuff that Lawfare traffics in and, you know, Lawfare readers traffic in is, 
it, it does really present these like interesting reporting and media media consumption questions in addition to like whatever on the merits is going on. I feel like Jacob just examined each of our souls and found it, found them wanting. (laughs) It's like the meanest thing you've ever said, Jacob. I will say I have actually not been on Twitter that much over the past week because I've, I've also been dealing with some other tasks and uh, reading up on this story all at once is like, mainlining some extremely powerful drug like it just you just go down the rabbit hole it is so (laughs) weird it is extremely strange before before we turn this into a a a reflection on a reflection on a reflection about a story uh do the meta thing that quinta and i i think are particularly addicted to talking about i I do want to ask about the secret service angle of this you know and this is something quinta you you kind of alluded to but um the secret service has just not been doing super well uh over the last many years, um, really since uh, I think the Secret Service was moved uh, from the Treasury Department into the Department of Homeland Security, there have just been these ongoing crises and embarrassments. And I haven't heard too much about the Secret Service in the last few years. And I think the Secret Service is one of those agencies where the less you hear about it, the better, because uh, it suggests that you know things are, are going okay. Do, do we know enough yet, Quinta, you know, as you've been going the rabbit hole, you know, do we know enough yet to, to determine whether this is not really related to the Secret Service, just they, or, or if this is another indication that the Secret Service just cannot get its act together? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if we know. I will say, again, uh, tracking the, the detention hearing that's going on right now, apparently, according to the AUSA in the case, the defendants were tipped off about being under investigation uh, because when the Secret Service launched the internal investigation into the people who had been interacting with these guys, one of the investigators reached out to Tahirzade and said he was conducting a review, thereby tipping oh, for Christ's sake. the people they were reviewing. So that, I think, suggests that there may be some <laughs> broader institutional problems here. To say the least. I mean, it it is really like notable in that they seem to have. This is part of the reason why I another data point that just kind of fits a little bit better with uh, a foreign intelligence angle. Honestly, is like it just seems like the Secret Service is a big vulnerability. Uh, and other, it should note they're not the only agency who's here. This is near a bunch of headquarters. It's like a f- more affordable luxury apartments with a rooftop pool. As far as I can tell, it sounds like it's pretty popular with a lot of federal employees of various stripes. Um, and it seems like a pretty obvious effort to get information on them and access to them. Quite possible there are lots of foreign governments doing very similar things in apartment complexes all across Washington, D.C. I wouldn't be surprised by it. It seems like these guys just may be a little clumsier about it. There's one guy, Tyrazada in particular, who loves to just post pictures of himself on Facebook holding a bunch of tactical weapons uh, in his apartment, <laughs> as far as we can tell. So, you know, it, it may be a sign of less of a, like, sophisticated intelligence operation as one that was not super sophisticated, but nonetheless was informed by, you know, some basic idea of, these are targets we want to acquire. And what's the goal there? Are they going to try and assassinate Dr. Joe Biden? Probably not. But you get information about all sorts of security procedures, all sorts of federal agencies, um, access to computer networks. In theory, you could do well, potentially a lot of different things um, if you actually get access to the homes of and the personal possessions of a bunch of federal law enforcement officials. So a very juicy target there. In this sense, we got really lucky uh, that the people executing this just weren't more effective at being a little subtle in terms of who it could be you know i I think it's it's a it's a fair question something hopefully we'll get for more information on the next couple weeks i mean i think the obvious candidates um because one of one of the gentlemen Haider ali is known to travel a bunch to the middle east his family reported in the hearing that he had converted uh uh, initially sufi and then shia islam was traveling to a bunch of holy sites in najaf and other places um these are all places where 
you have a very strong Iranian intelligence presence. So it's not hard to imagine that they may have been coordinating, particularly because this was the individual who claimed that who allegedly had access to the line of funding and cash that may have been recruited by Iranian intelligence or Hezbollah or one of these other groups that are kind of proxies for Iranian intelligence. Um, that seems like the shortest order. Pakistani intelligence maybe because they have this claim of ties, but it doesn't seem to really line up with what they'd be interested in doing uh, as much as the Iranians does. I mean, remember, the Iranian intelligence does ambitious stuff like this all the time. They had a plot to assassinate uh, the ambassador from Saudi Arabia in a Georgetown restaurant less than 10 years ago um, that actually got pretty far along. So so it's an ambitious group that does sometimes pretty wild card things and is reasonably well-resourced. And this could fit into that pattern. But really, I don't think we should jump to any conclusions about what these guys are doing where, because frankly, the weird gun nut angle could be just as plausible. We just have to wait for other elements of the story to develop. Well, unfortunately, we will have to leave the conversation there until our next update on the strange, strange story as to what exactly these well-armed individuals were up to. But of course, this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think about for the rest of your week. Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So mine is a, a food object lesson, going, going back to the, the roots. Um, I'm a huge fan of nut spreads, right? I love, I love me some peanut butter. The objectively best choice being uh, Skippy Creamy. I will, not, uh, I, will, I will not accept comments on this. Uh, I like uh, almond butter is very good. I like Nutella because, you know, hazelnut's delicious and what a brilliant way of stretching chocolate. But I think I have discovered the greatest nut butter in the world, maybe the greatest spread period. And that is something called pistachioza, which is a a Sicilian pistachio spread. They just grind pistachios and a little sugar and they add some olive oil. Uh, You can get it on Amazon. It turns out the the first time I got it was, uh, was uh, as part of some, uh, uh, some Zingerman's package, which was amazing, uh, but very expensive, but it turns out you can get uh, relatively affordably from Amazon. And it is indescribably tasty. You do have to like pistachios, but if you like pistachios, it tastes so intensely of pistachio. It's wonderful. Like that on some fresh bread is, it's wonderful. It just makes me very happy. So that's my object lesson. I highly, highly recommend it. Quinta, want to hand over to you. So as I mentioned, I've been dealing with a lot of tasks this week, um, namely moving, which has required a lot of listening to music and podcasts, and also magazine articles on Autumn, which is my favorite app. This is not, however, a show for Autumn, uh, which I definitely do recommend, but for a particular article on on Autumn. And, And to be clear, Autumn, if you would like... To support us, we will. We <laughs> I will. I will show for autumn all day. Autumn any is day. autumn is great. Uh, yes, yes. I please. think I I have pestered Jacob about it incessantly. There is a particular article I listened to that I found interesting. It is in New York Magazine. Uh, you can read it as well as listen. It's called "The Future of Trumpism" by Jonathan Chait, which is a long sort of profile of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and meditation on the extent to which he really represents a kind of next wave Trumpism um, and whether he can dethrone Trump as the leader of the Republican Party. It's a question I've been thinking a lot about lately, in particular, whether DeSantis is as dangerous as Trump, more dangerous or less. Um, And I thought that Chait did a really nice job sort of digging into that question, contextualizing it a little bit. I, I would not say that I came away reassured particularly. Um, But it was a a welcome deep dive on a subject that I think is only going to become more important, unfortunately, as the 2024 election grows nearer. We should totally at some point talk about Trumpism without Trump. 
because I think it oh, man, is I like have so many thoughts. The, the, the critical political dynamic of our time and, and worth worth thinking about seriously. I feel like that has been an undercurrent of like half of our conversations on the show, but maybe one day we will make it the overcurrent and just bring it a washing over all of us uh, and washing away the other things we may want to talk about that week. Um, with that clumsy metaphor out of the way, <laughs> I will go to my object lesson uh, this week where I have had a uh, the joy of having a, a, a somewhat cranky and tantrum oriented 15 month old uh, inhabiting my house for the last few days, particularly where it's been rainy, which has led me to dig deeper than I would otherwise into Disney plus looking for some visual stimulation to maybe get a little, a little bit of a, a of a calm down playground time um, with my son. And I ended up watching a movie that is so charming and lovely and I somehow missed it entirely. And I think it has, has gotten as underappreciated its time and deserves more attention. So I'll bring it up. And that is the movie Coco from a few years ago. That was an absolutely phenomenal movie um, that deals with like very adult themes about death and mortality in a really like delicate and emotionally touching way. There's a murder mystery. There's all sorts of stuff happening in this movie. That's absolutely fantastic. And it's against this super, super gorgeous influenced by that kind of design and style of the day of the dead and Mexican culture and takes all that and turns in this whole afterworld universe that has this incredibly visual style. It's just absolutely stunning. It's amazing. I'd say, I think it beats out Encanto for my favorite recent Disney movie that I've seen, which is big. I may like the music in Encanto slightly better, but the rest of the movie in Coco, the plot, the like visual element of it is so amazing. It may beat it out now that I've experienced both. So I encourage folks, if you've got that Disney Plus subscription, dig into Coco, share it with your favorite local little one uh, and, and see if they get into it. I really enjoyed it. I may have cried a little bit at the end. I'm not going to lie. It has a love, and it does have one lovely song, the Remember Me song that is a recurring theme throughout. There's a lovely acoustic version that I, I quite enjoy. Jacob, why don't you bring us home? So my object lesson, I, I had mentioned earlier that I'd been traveling a bit. Um, this weekend I was in California and I, I have not been to California very many times. This is my second time ever going. And there were a couple of moments that really made me feel like a the true dyed-in-the-wool East Coaster that I am. And the one that made me feel like that the most was that I saw in public a real-life skateboard rack, a rack on which people can lock up their skateboards. And it's very beautifully designed. And I think Jen should be able to include a link to a picture in the show notes. And I was just absolutely gobsmacked when I saw this and felt like the biggest loser ever at my bewilderment that this existed. Um, but it, it's pretty cool. I visited a few years ago my wife's Southern California college campus, and it was amazing because that's how everyone got around. It was just skateboards left and right. It was crazy to me. It was like a weird episode of The Simpsons from the 90s. Uh, I could not get over it. And I'm like, wow, how are there not more head injuries? Because no one's wearing helmets. But apparently they get away with it. There are some deep pathologies in California, no question. But there's also a sense in which if you are not living in California, you're just by definition doing it wrong. And I, I frequently toggle between those two feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's about right. That's about right, Land, on this too. West Coast in general. 
Well, on that very East Coast note, <laughs> that unfortunately, for better or for worse, brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast and our special series on the response the January 6th insurrection, the aftermath. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this very podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Jacob Schultz, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 